Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Well, good morning. We are in week two of our series, Uncertainty. Speaking of real doubt, and that leads to real faith. Last week, I got the opportunity to speak about doubt. We, we looked at the life of Thomas, and Thomas was, uh, is always painted as this picture of someone that is just doubting Thomas, right? Uh, but we saw, hopefully you saw, that he is actually rather faithful in many moments of his life. Thank you, Sam. And he, he actually displays just a moment of doubt and uh, he gets that label for the rest of his life. It's rather unfortunate. I would actually put, if there was a spectrum of faithfulness with the disciples, I would put, I think I would put Thomas towards the top. Uh, and so we talked about unhealthy ways to approach and deal with doubt and healthy ways. And I hope that was an encouragement to you. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about a very important question to me as I have dealt with doubt in the past, and that's, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust God's word? Can I trust that the contents within my Bible are true? And can I trust that the transmission process from generation to generation has been accurately copied through centuries? And so I'm really, really excited about our time together this morning. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of scripture today. Uh, It's hard to stay in one passage when you're talking about a topic of can I trust the Bible, so it'll seem like I'm bouncing around, but just try to follow me as best as you can. Uh, I'm going to start in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16 through 19. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Father, we just thank you for the opportunity to dig into your word this morning and to learn more about who you are and your revelation to us directly so that we might have a relationship with you. God, help us to have a high regard for your word uh, because you have revealed to us the nature of who you are and your character and how we can have a relationship with you. God, guide our hearts this morning. Uh, Help us to learn so that we might be able to take this beyond the walls of this church. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, before I get started this morning, I just want to set something up. Uh, I already started in this area. I gave an an assignment. Uh, I have an object lesson, y'all. I'm a student pastor, right? I used to be a teacher, so you're just going to have to bear with me. I believe they are very useful. Uh, And so they they got a piece of paper, and they've been copying it, and it's probably ended somewhere over in here. And so whenever you get a chance, you can just bring it to the stage. Nobody's going to think it's weird because I told you to do it, all right? Same thing over here. I gave uh, a stack of cards uh, and for you to copy, and so whenever you want to bring it to the stage, that would be great. Uh, I want to start over here. Uh, A lot of people, is this going to ring when I come down the stage? Sorry, camera guy, my bad. Uh, A lot of people think that the, the writing of Scripture is like a game of telephone, 
right? Where it's like the, God's word was passed from generation to generation only by mouth. So I'm going to do a, a little project here. You guys are going to be the people that I use, and he actually needs one. You need a pen. Uh, actually, I'm so sorry. You don't actually need one. Just pass this down to the other end. You're going to take this and read it and memorize it, and then you're going to tell your dad, and you're going to then pass it down like a game of telephone. And whatever you get at the end, you're just going to write it down. And when you get finished, just walk it up to the front of the stage. So whenever I was in uh, high school, I was dealing with doubt. I thought that the game, uh, the, that God's word being copied was like a game of telephone. I thought that there's no way that it could be reliable. There's no way, there's no possible way that we could trust that God's word is exactly what the authors penned in the first century A.D., And so I I went on a search trying to determine what is the truth of that. Can we trust God's word? Can we trust scripture? And so that's the question that we're going to be talking about this morning. Uh, And I want to present to you three reasons why you can trust your Bible. Uh, Very simple. But before we get there, I just wanted to break a few things down. Uh, Last week, I talked about a term. It's apologetics. Uh, It's something that I am passionate about. And sometimes it gets a bad rap uh, because I think people use apologetics in the wrong way. Uh, But I want to read from you uh, for you 1 Peter 3.15. It says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now, that term uh, defense, uh, the Greek word for that term is apologia. Apologia just means a reasoned defense. And so apologia is, sounds a whole lot like that word, apologetics, right? And so when we are, as Christians, when you're sharing the love of Jesus with someone or you're telling someone about Jesus, it's very likely that they're going to have questions, right? And so your job, everybody is an apologist at that point. Everyone is tasked with the responsibility to give a reason defense. Why? To anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, which our hope is in Christ. And so if Christ is our hope, right, we always have to be prepared to share a reason defense for why we believe he is the son of God and he is the risen Lord. And I, I want to make sure that I mention this because I think that sometimes we can go on the offensive or on the attack when we are uh, trying to share arguments or evidence uh, about the Christian faith. Sometimes we do it because we just want to win an argument uh, and we treat God's word um, inappropriately. Uh, and what we should do is be on the defensive. It's not that we're trying to be uh, offensive. We're not trying to attack. In fact, the God's word is as offensive as it needs to be, right? Jesus's message offends a whole lot of people. It's why people reject God's word. But we're called to be on the defense. When someone has a question, that's when we should be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ. So my, my next question would be, well, what is the Bible? just the basis, before we ask, can I trust it? Well, what is it? And I want to posit to you very simply that the Bible is the story of reality. It's the story of what is actually real and what's actually true. When you read Genesis 1, it does not read, once upon a time, God created the heavens and the earth. It does not read like a fairy tale. No, Moses, when he wrote Genesis, he wrote it as a history. He says, in the beginning... God. 
He did not intend for it to be just this story that sounds good and is encouraging. Uh, or, and then there's this person named Jesus who comes to save and it's going to make everybody happy. No, this is a history of what happened. And so when we read God's word, we should read it as a history, the genre that it is in the moments where it, that's the genre that it makes sense. There are other portions of scripture that are prophetic. Uh, when you get to the gospels or the epistles, Paul's letters, you read it as a letter, right? But it's not intended to be make-believe. The Bible is also a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses. This is incredibly important, that it's a collection. It's not just written by one singular person like you would see in other faiths, in other religions. It's not one singular person like Joseph Smith or Buddha or Muhammad. It's a collection of people. In fact, it's 40 different authors from three different continents in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It has 66 volumes. It's written over the span of 1,500 years, and yet, despite all of those things, it has one coherent and consistent story. Thank you. So God's Word is a reliable collection of historical documents. These were historical documents that you can read for yourself. Now, one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith that I had whenever I was in my time of learning was that there are no original manuscript copies of the Bible. The authors of Scripture, when they wrote the Bible, they penned it with their hand. It's called an autograph. When they penned the letters or the, the Gospels or whatever they penned, uh, it was a document, right? And no, no document exists today. They're, they have all deteriorated and been destroyed. And that discouraged me. But it was in that question that I had that I actually, for a while, I apathetically just remember put it in the closet and just act like it didn't exist. Uh, but it was finally that I decided, you know what, this is giving me so much fear and anxiety, I need to address this question. And so instead of allowing it to just cause fear and anxiety, I finally decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up. And you know what I found? It was the dumbest objection in the world. Because there are no historical documents from the ancient era that we have the original documents of. There are none, right? Because it's been two millennium since the time of Jesus, since uh, the first century writings had occurred. Now, what is the Bible? The Bible is a God's instruction manual for living. It's a perfectly right set of laws that flow out of a perfectly right God to instruct us how to live according to his design. And finally, God's word, the Bible, is the revelation from God himself, his special revelation to us, because he desires a relationship with you. He wanted to give you information about who he is and his character and his love and his plan of redemption through Jesus Christ, and he wanted to communicate that to me and to you. That is what the Bible is. Now, why, why did God give us the Bible? I think there's many reasons I could give you through Scripture, but I'm just going to give you two. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Verse 13, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. God gives us his word because it is the most fruitful and fulfilling way to live. He gives us commandments and instructions for how we are to live in this life by the way that he designed because it is for your good. Sometimes uh, when I was, I was a teenager, I thought that the Bible just had all these rules, and all these regulations just trying to make my life boring and horrible, and I just couldn't stand it. But in fact, as I've learned and matured in my faith, big time, uh, I've realized that actually God's commandments and his, uh, his laws that he gives us to us are really because he desires for you to have the best life and fulfilling life that you can have because it's according to the way that he designed it to be. And in fact, when you break his laws, it leads to unfulfillment and chaos and disorder. I come from a family in which I'm the only Christian. And to see the life that they live, they view Christianity as a bunch of laws and regulations. And their life is not fruitful. It is not a fulfilling lifestyle. And they're searching for for something that can give them hope. And I'm like, it's in Scripture. It's it's through Jesus who gives you joy. Now, John 15, verse 10 and 11 gives us another example of why God gave us the Bible. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is this passage where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, then I will also in you. And then in verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God gave us his word because he wants you to experience the fullness of joy that comes when you are in a relationship, when you are a branch that's attached to the vine He wants to give you the fullness of joy that comes through Jesus Christ. The love between the Father and the Son we get to experience because of Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, so we have what is the Bible, and we have why did God give us the Bible. Uh, A lot of people might still be skeptics. You might still be wondering and asking the question, well, how can I trust it? And a minute ago, I mentioned that there are no original manuscripts in existence today. And one of the things that I found in my pursuit of truth is a research from the Christian Research Institute. They did what's called the bibliographical test. They not only tested the Bible, but they tested any ancient work that you would experience in a university classroom. They tested the reliability of all of those, or as many as they could, the major ones. And so what I want to do is just walk through this just for a moment. Uh, There are three components to that test. Number one was dating. It's the time gap between when a manuscript was written to the manuscript copy that is available in existence today. So if Homer's The Iliad was written in 800 B.C., and the earliest manuscript copy we have today is 400 B.C., that is a 400-year time gap, okay? That's actually really, really good. That's a literary marvel in terms of ancient literature scholarship, right? So the second one would be abundance. 
Abundance. This is the number of manuscripts cop, manuscript copies available today that you could study and look at. And so Homer's the Iliad. I think the chart, do you have the chart behind me? Yeah, throw it out there. Uh, Homer's the Iliad has over 1,800 manuscripts that attest to the truth of the original. That is a significant number. Let's look at a couple other of these. You have Herodotus's The His- History. He's actually known as the father of history. I remember in my history class uh, in college, that's what I was told, is Herodotus was the, f- the father of history. He wrote his work in 480, somewhere between 480 to 425 BC. The earliest copy that we have available today is from the first century AD, which is a time gap of about 500 plus years. And abundance, that second test, there are about 108 copies that you could study today. Now, I I won't go through all of these. I actually cut this list from, there's a longer list than this, Uh, but let me give you another example. Plato's Tetralogies, 400 BC, it was the date that it's supposedly written. The earliest manuscript copy that you can study and look at today is in 895 AD. That is a time gap of 1,300 years. And there are about 210 Uh, copies that you can study. Now, all of these works, in terms of academia, these are considered very reliable sources. And when, if you went into a university classroom, no one would ever question whether or not the contents in these works are reliable and whether or not the words that are within those documents are what the original author wrote, right? The third test is accuracy, is to take the abundance of all of those copies and to test the coherence and the consistency between all of them. Now, this is what one of the things that encouraged me whenever I was pursuing after this question is I thought, well, you know, how could we trust the Bible and how can we trust that it would be uh, Reliable, And how, how could we trust that the, the, the time gap between whenever the earliest manuscripts that are available to the time it was written, how can we trust that the transmission of those was, was done correctly? And of course, I, when I saw this, I was like, well, man, we, got, we can't trust any ancient works if we're going to start to question the Bible. Let me show you why. Go to the next slide. Uh, the Greek New Testament... Uh, mostly was written between the years 50 to 100 AD. I would... I would posit to you that the entire New Testament was completely written and was accepted by Christian communities by the end of the first century AD. The earliest manuscript that you can uh, look at and read today is is called the John Rylands Manuscript. It's a fragment. Most would date it somewhere between uh, 120 to 125 AD, but they use a conservative number, 130 AD or less which produces a time gap of only 50 to 80 years. Now, in that previous image, there are no ancient documents that can boast a time gap that is that small, right? And then, as far as abundance, there are over, which I put the plus sign, 5,838 manuscripts that you can study today of just the New Testament alone, that were written in Greek. This is not including all of the translations in Syriac and Coptic, those early translations. These are just the Greek New Testament. Almost 6,000 manuscripts that attest to the original documents written in the first century AD. That is overwhelming, especially considering Homer's The Iliad, which is a literary marvel, has 
less than a third of the amount that the New Testament boasts. And if we were to take the Greek New Testament early translations, like Syriac, uh, Syriac and Coptic, over 18,500 copies. The Old Testament, which is uh, a lot more difficult to test attestation, uh, would still have over 42,000 copies. Josh McDowell, this comes from Josh McDowell. Uh, Josh McDowell said, if you were to stack all of the copies of the Old Testament in a pile of paper, we'll say papyrus or parchment for our sake, uh, if you were to stack it, it would be an, a mile and a half tall into the sky. And if you put the New Testament on top of it, it would be another mile. It would be two and a half miles high of copies of Scripture that, have been, that attest to the original documents. That's incredibly encouraging right? I mean, that is incredibly encouraging. In 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Uh, and one of the most encouraging things about the Dead Sea Scrolls was that they took documents found in 1947 and compared them to the earliest translations of the Old Testament and New Testament they could find. The entire book of Isaiah, almost word for word, exactly the same as the document, document that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls to the earliest manuscript of Isaiah that we have in existence today. Listen, if you were to go into a university classroom and there is questions about the reliability of the New Testament alone, you would also have to question every other work in antiquity because the Bible, according to this test, is the most reliable piece of literature in all of the ancient world. And so as I was looking for, can I trust God's word? Can I trust that the contents in this book that I read, is it true? Is it telling me and guiding me the right way? I was encouraged to find that the Bible stands the test of, of ancient scholarship. And I hope that you see that as well. Uh, really quickly, I want to give you just three reasons why you can trust the Bible. Number one is that it was written early. So if you're taking notes, number one, it's written early. There's a lot of different ways that I could show you this, uh, but uh, earlier I mentioned that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses. That phrase, I, written by eyewitnesses, is significant. All of the books of, of the New Testament, well, all the books of the Bible, are written by eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses meaning that it had to be written very closely to the time that those events occurred. If you were a crime scene investigator and you were questioning someone and they weren't actually at the scene of the crime and they had only heard about what had happened, would you consider that a reliable source? No, you wouldn't, right? You would want to question eyewitnesses. And so in, uh, in the passage that I read earlier from 2 Peter, it says, For we did not know, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. The Bible was written early. Now, I want to show you, give you two different evidences that might, maybe would help this out. I, again, I argue that the New Testament was completed by the first century A.D., but I want, to, I want to try to narrow that down just a little bit earlier. I think it was written much earlier. The deaths of James, Peter, and Paul, 
The siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD are not included in any of the Gospels or the book of Acts. Now, it's understandable why they're not included in the Gospels, because the Gospels are just simply the good news about Jesus. But Acts, which Luke is the person that wrote Acts, Luke, he desires to give an orderly account to this person named Theophilus. And he wants to give a narrative of the events that occurred, not only in Jesus's era, but the book of Acts is about the early church and all of those early Christians that were martyred and were dedicated to the faith and the way that they uh, were missionaries and all of those things. And so in the book of Acts, that would have been a perfect place to talk about these very major events of people in the early church. And yet they're not included in Acts. Why? Well, I think it's pretty simple. It's because those events had not happened yet. Because the, the Luke had written the Gospel of Luke and Acts prior to those events occurring. But I think it's even better than that. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11, he gives a very accurate depiction of the Lord's Supper and details that are only found in, in Luke chapter 19 through 20. When Luke gives his uh, his historical narrative of the Lord's Supper, there are details that he includes that the other three Gospels do not include. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians, gives those details, which means that Luke and Acts had to precede 1 Corinthians. And so 1 Corinthians is, uh, biblical scholars say that it was written between 53 to 57 AD. And so it had to be before that. And so Luke and Acts, the, Luke writing the Gospels and the book of Acts, had to be earlier than that. Most biblical scholars say between 50 to 53 AD. Now, this might still trouble you because Jesus, as you might be aware if you're a historian, died somewhere around 30 to 33 AD. There's still 20 years between when the words of Scripture were written by Luke, or yes, all the way back to Jesus, the events that occurred when Jesus died and resurrected from the dead. That might be concerning to you. But let me, let me give you an example. If someone were to go to Vietnam, and if, if there was someone that fought in the Vietnam War, they were there for several years, and they fought, and then they came home, and then they went lecturing and teaching in universities for 20 to 30 years, and then all of a sudden, one day they were like, you know what, I, I really need to write this book so that after I die, people will know about my experiences in the Vietnam War. Would you consider that person to be a reliable source? Of course you would, because he was there, he was an eyewitness, and just because 20 to 30 years had passed, and also, remember, he is sharing his story and lecturing for many, many years, all of those details would be fresh. Consider uh, the, where you were September 11th, 2001, you probably remember very specific details about that day because it was a monumental day in, in our history of the United States, right? But consider if you were actually in New York City and you saw the towers falling with your own eyes, you would never forget that scene in your mind. You would remember so many details about that. You could give a very vivid picture of that story of what happened, now imagine this, the disciples, that we talked about this last week, Jesus appears to them after he was dead on the cross. He appears to them and he's claiming that, hey, I have defeated death and I have won the victory for you. 
And I'm standing before you as evidence of that truth. Do you think that the disciples probably realized this was a major moment? They saw the resurrection or the crucifixion, and now they're seeing him after he is resurrected. They, this was a major day, and they would remember all of those details very vividly. And so you can trust that from the 20 to 30 years, and that's a conservative number, I would argue, is not, is not something that should cause you worry. It's actually really encouraging because Scripture is very reliable. So that's number one. It was written early. Number two, it has not changed over time. Now, if you're not familiar with the copying of Scripture, the transmission process, uh, scribes were people that copied Scripture. Scribes were professionals. They were professionals at copying the words of Scripture and many other things, but that's what they did. This was their job. They worked and did this for many hours a day. There was a group called the Masoretes. They copied the Old Testament, and we actually have some of their, the way that they did it and all of the, the rules that they followed. They were very strict. They meticulously copied Scripture, and their goal was to preserve the Old Testament writings as best as they could because they realized the value of God's word being shared to future generations. So I just want to read to you just a couple. You can actually read these uh, and uh, a couple of their rules and their strict um, disciplines that they had in copying scripture. This was a class of people who ceremonial, ceremonially washed his, their entire body before transcribing God's word. They would garb themselves in full Jewish dress before sitting at his desk. The scroll must be written on a skin of a clean animal. Each skin must contain a specified number of columns equal throughout the entire book. The length of each column must extend no less than 48 lines or more than 60 lines. The column must consist of exactly 30 letters. The space of thread must appear between every consonant. The breadth of nine consonants had to be inserted between each section. A space of lines had to appear between each book. The fifth book of Moses, which is Deuteronomy, had to conclude exactly with a full line. Nothing, not even the shortest word, could be copied from memory, it had to be copied letter by letter. The scribe must count the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book and compare it to the original. If a manuscript was found to contain one mistake, it was discarded. Now, that seems a little overboard. But these were a group of people that understood the significance of copying the words of the Lord for people of future generations to have an accurate depiction of his word. And so I'm encouraged when I think about these professional scribes, people like this who really just went as far as they could and as detailed as they could to meticulously and accurately copy the words of scripture. Now, you might still not have be encouraged by this. So I just want to, I want to go, it's, it's y'all's time now, right? Uh, for the people that did the illustration for me, uh, I have three different groups that uh, did uh, an object lesson, so to speak. Uh, in this group over here, I gave to Blake a card and he was to pass down the message that I wrote on the card all the way down to, what's your name, sir? 
Jared, okay, so, and then he received a message, and that is one, two, three, four, five, six steps away from the original. See, I thought as a, as a very immature Christian early on that the words of Scripture were copied only by word of mouth, and then one day they wrote it down in about the third or fourth century A.D., and so if, if we view the writing of Scripture as the telephone game, you might think it would be unreliable. Uh, I'm going to try to find here. I think here is the one that they did. I wrote down this. This is, this is what I wrote on this card. The Philadelphia Eagles will win the Super Bowl tonight, 31 to 28. Why are you laughing? A lot of Chiefs fans in here. Patrick Mahomes will throw two interceptions. And Jalen Hurts will be the Super Bowl MVP. If that actually happens tonight, that would be pretty awesome. Here's what, here's what we got in, in this group right here. It says, the Eagles, the Eagles will win the Super Bowl, period. Patrick Mahomes will throw three interceptions. I don't know what happened with the number there. Look, he's looking at her like, I can't believe you. How'd you mess that up? That's fine. Exactly, yeah, exactly what happened. Okay, so this message... While not even close to being correct, for the most part, still conveys the same message, right? But there, there's still a lot of mistakes here. There's still a lot of variance. This is a difference between the original to a copy is called a variant, okay? There are a lot of changes here. Now, I used to think this was the representation of the way that Scripture was copied. This is how the stories of Scripture, this is how we received it. And what I want you to understand is that even if that were true, our understanding of the telephone game is that it's really hard to remember an entire story uh, and pass it down from person to person. But that is us applying a 2023 viewpoint of memorization to a first century culture. You see, we don't memorize anything, right? Uh, we have these things that are pretty awesome and help us not to have to worry about memorizing things. In the first century, this was the way that they communicated stories. Everything was communicated through story. Everything that was passed down was by story. And the preservation of those stories were not held by a singular person. They were held by communities. And so if a community was preserving a story and someone came along and gave an incorrect view of that story, they could correct it because they cared. And it was the only way that they could preserve that story. As a historian, uh, that would be stressful for me uh, to worry about people messing that up, okay? But this is not the way that Scripture was transmitted from generation to generation. Our second group here, they, yeah, we started, I think, right here. All right, their job, I don't know which one is yours. That one? Does this look like your handwriting right here? Look, you're like, like... I can read it. Okay, here we go. <laughs> if it's bad, it's yours. Okay. Um, their job was, to, I gave uh, this lady a, a, my copy, all right, the original manuscript. It's called the autographed. And she took my copy, copied down her copy, and then she passed it to her copy to the next person. He copied it down. And then he took his copy and passed it down, right? And it went all the way down. I think it ended with you. Is that right? Oh, it actually ended all, Joe, you're my guy. Okay, so Joe is the last one. Which one is yours right here? Can you see? No? Help me out real quick. Which one is yours? That one, okay. All right, so Joe was one, two, three, four, five steps away from the original. 
This is also, after I realized it's not really about the telephone game, I thought that it was done like this, that the ESV, which is written in the early 2000s, was copied from just, uh, you know, the newest translation of scripture, maybe from the King James. When the King James was translated maybe from the Latin Vulgate, and the Latin Vulgate was translated from an early translation of scripture, right? I thought that there was multiple steps in that process of transmission. This is called a single line of transmission. Now, as you can tell, uh, this says the Philadelphia Eagles will win the Super Bowl tonight, 31 to 28, no comma. Patrick Mahomes will throw two interceptions. No, it does say will throw two INTs, and Jalen Hurts will win the Super Bowl MVP. Now, on my copy, I have the exact same words, except that uh, there are no commas. So I see one, two variants, and then there, I put an ellipsis after MVP because I'm mean like that, uh, and the ellipsis is not on this copy. So that would be three variants that occurred in this copying of Scripture. It's okay. You did a great job, all right? You did a great job. So you might still be worried about the accuracy of Scripture passed down from generation to generation because people make mistakes. By the way, they aren't professionals. Professionals might not have made these mistakes, but as we study transmission, there have been many mistakes that have occurred over the course of 2,000 years. It just happens. We're human, right? But three variants. Bart Ehrman, he's a skeptic of the Christian faith. He says that there are 350,000 to 400,000 variants in Scripture, in the, or just in the New Testament alone. Now, in all of these, as I read that message, it sounded to you that there were no differences at all that the three variants were just grammatical errors. In fact, the variants that Bart Ehrman is claiming actually can be boiled down to just a few things, spelling errors, grammatical errors, or just slips of the pen. And that there are actually very few moments in the transmission over 2,000 years where there are actual people, scribes, who might intentionally or even unintentionally change something. It the changes that they would make might be something like this. I put, we'll throw two INTs, which if you're a football fan is an abbreviation of interception. And so if somebody wrote down interception just because they thought that the person that reads it after them would have more clarity about what that means, that would be the type of changes that were made over centuries. Okay, so the changes and the variants that you can learn about and study in, in the transmission of scripture are not as concerning as Bart Ehrman claims them to be. In fact, I would argue that the gospel writers, the words that they penned about Jesus and his ministry and his life are the exact story that you have in your Bible today. Now, this was the last group, and this is actually the best representation, thank you, the best representation of what happened with Scripture. Because I took my copy and I gave it to the first person, and then she took my copy and gave it to the next person, Miss Linda, and then Miss Linda took the, my copy and kept passing down the autograph. You see, these writings from the gospel writers, they penned these words, and then those were shared with communities so that they could copy down for themselves the words of Scripture. And so when it got to the end, I don't know if it'll be perfect, but we'll see. The Philadelphia Eagles will win the Super Bowl tonight, 31 to 28, comma. Patrick Mahomes will throw two INTs, apostrophe S, and Jalen Hurts will be the Super Bowl MVP, ellipsis. Exactly right. 
Great job. That is a much more reliable way of viewing transmission, is that original copies were given to communities, and there were multiple lines of transmission. This is a much stronger and trustworthy case for Scripture than this group, even though this group was basically there and much more reliable than the telephone game. The words of Scripture have been passed down to you in a very meticulous and accurate way so that you can have trust and faith and hope that what is in the Gospels, what is in the New Testament and the Old Testament are exactly what were penned by those authors in the first century AD and before. It is, it is that point, at that point that I realized that, man, God's word is so powerful. It is the power to save. Through Jesus' resurrection, God has communicated that story of reality to you. Now, the third reason why you can trust your Bible, you might still not be there, uh, but the third reason why you can trust your Bible is that the authors are telling the truth. I know it seems simple, but there are many ways that I could share why I think that the authors are telling the truth. I'm going to give you two. Uh, number one is that they lacked bias. They lacked bias. Uh, J. Warner Wallace, uh, he's an apologist, someone that I respect. He's a cold case detective in California. And he was an atheist, and he thought that the, the New Testament was just a fairy tale, or the Bible itself was a fairy tale, and it was not true. Uh, and he decided one day that he was just going to try to use his skills as a uh, cold case detective to try to uncover the truth about the reliability of Scripture, and whether or not the, the authors of Scripture were telling the truth. And so he actually says there are three reasons, and only three reasons, why anyone commits a crime, Okay? So those three are, one is financial greed, financial greed because of money. The second one is because of sexual or relational lust. And the third one is for the pursuit of power. All crimes that have ever existed come down to those three things. That is what he says. So if people claim that the, the authors of scripture are lying about what they wrote down, they would have to fit in one of these three categories. Let's think about this in the disciples, were they gaining money and financial status by becoming a follower of Jesus? Not at all. They were a people group who decided to surrender their jobs, right? These fishermen just left their nets and followed Jesus. Their families, they surrendered everything to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus told them, uh, one, told one of the disciples, hey, I don't know where we're sleeping tonight. There's not a place that I lay my head, so we're just going to figure it out. It was a life of poverty. Paul was a person who was dedicated to the truth of, the, of Scripture, and he went to prison for the sake of the gospel. And he wrote tr the truth about God's word from prison. There's no money involved. Is it sexual or relational lust? Are they getting any girlfriends out of this? No, probably not. Is it the third one? Is it the pursuit of power? Are we suggesting that Paul, the author of several of the letters in the New Testament, who was a high-ranking officer in the Roman military, took a step down from that to become a Christ follower so that he could have more power? No, he was in prison. He, he was put in prison for surrendering his position of power to follow Jesus 
and to, he was persecuted for his faith. And so none of the disciples, in fact, it goes further than that, they all died for their faith, right? They're all martyrs. None of the disciples and many of the apostles had any reason to tell a lie. And so the second reason why the, I think the authors are telling the truth is because all of the disciples became martyrs for their faith. All of them. They all went to their grave not surrendering the fact that Jesus is Lord and the events that we saw with our own eyes actually occurred. The disciples are telling you the truth. The authors are telling you the truth in Scripture. You can trust not only the words of Scripture, but the process of transmission throughout many centuries. Now, I know that begs a lot of questions. There's still a lot of questions that you have. And so you might ask, uh, Chris, I'm about to be done. Uh, but you might ask, well, Trevor, like what, why do you trust the Bible? Why do you trust the Bible? I believe that the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the time of other eyewitnesses. It was written by three, in three different countries, in three different languages, by 40 authors. In, it has 66 volumes. It's written over the span of 1,500 years. It was written by many people in many walks of life and occupations, and yet it holds one narrative of, and story about God's love and redemption of his children. It's cohesive, it's consistent. And when it's put up to the test of academia and historical tests like the bibliographical test, it holds true. And it's because that the, the authors of scripture, they wrote early, it hasn't changed. And the authors are telling the truth. That is why I trust the Bible. But the biggest one is this, is that I decided that one day I was gonna trust it. And it changed my life. Will you pray for, with me this morning? God, we're so thankful for your word. And a lot of times we, we struggle with whether or not the words are, that were within it are telling us the truth. Maybe the people in this room don't at all and it's just me. Um, but God, you've given me assurance and certainty because you didn't just ask us to believe that your word is true on blind faith, God. No, you've given us evidence and reasons to believe in the hope that we have in, in Christ. And God, we pray that as uh, people in this room might be asking these questions and struggling with this, that this would not be the only time that they, they start asking these questions or, or try to pursue after truth about whether or not they can trust your word. But this would just launch them into a pursuit about your word and, and whether or not they can trust it. God, we, we pray that you would guide their hearts. God, evidence and arguments don't win us to you. It's you that softens our hearts and brings us to you, that you are our morning star that we need. God, we love you so much and we're so thankful for this church and we're thankful for an environment where we can share the questions and the doubts that we have. Uh, and God, as we continue to deal with these things, continue to give us peace and comfort in those moments when we're just not sure. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.